I'm going to start recording. Yay. Um, so, Dave, do you, yeah. see, do you see your book strategically positioned behind me? Oh, very nice. Thank you. I didn't do that for this meeting. I just wanted to make sure you knew it was there. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's like the new thing now in like, especially press conferences, is strategic placement of like meta messages in the mm. background. Like when some political leader is speaking, like the people hosting it are sending some subversive message in the back. It's fantastic. Um, so uh, yeah, so thank you all for coming. Um, so this is the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dylan Thomas. Um, and uh, today we are talking with the amazing Sarah Walker Betcher. Uh, in a moment, Sarah, I'm just going to let you do your own bio because it's there's so many things. I'll let you pick what to highlight. But well, shit, just, you just made it hard. <laughs> <laughs> or I just made it easy for myself. See how I did that? Mm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So uh, always plotting. So uh, just some uh, ground rules. We're going to leave you on mute, but um, uh, we're going to be collecting questions in the chat. And uh, do me a favor, if you have a question, in all caps, type text, and then the question, if you just want me to read it and you don't want to appear, or video in all caps, and then the question, if you want me to just throw to you and be like, hey, Bob, what's your question? Um, the all caps is important because you know a lot of things go by in chat, and it's really hard to like key in if I don't see that. So please, please do that if you have questions. Uh, but for starters, uh, Sarah, tell us uh, who you are, what you are about. Oh gosh, I'm about a lot of things. So I uh, am the founder of a little company called Active Voice, where I do leadership coaching and leadership programs for people in tech and design. Uh, But that's a relatively new thing. I started doing that because I spent a lot of years working as a consultant in UX, content strategy, design, and and writing about ethics and inclusion and bias in technology products. And what I found is that after doing lots and lots of speaking and workshops and talking to companies and getting into some of those big Silicon Valley organizations and feeling like they mostly just wanted to be told that they were doing a good job, uh, was that the biggest thing that was, that was really important to me was working with people and the way that people could build up more courage to be able to push back against their organizations or to create something new in this industry. And so I started shifting gears and putting all of my time and energy into how do we help people become more courageous leaders in whatever kinds of roles that they're in. And that's what I do now. And I, I, I sympathize, right? Because I feel like as I'm going out and talking now, um, I've got this book designed for cognitive bias, which you've so graciously put in your background. Um, when I talk about this stuff, that is one of the first questions I get is like, I am, a, I am, I am not the, the CEO of my company. Um, <laughs> how do I push back with either my client or my boss? And like, I devote some time in that to the book, but like, it is such a growing need. it is not a surprise to me that you can actually build a business simply around how do I be a more courageous leader? How how do I be more courageous in advocating for the things that I care about in my work? Yeah. And I think that one of the biggest things that I have found is that I kept talking to people who would say, you know, I want to be able to uh, design more inclusively. I want to be able to build this into my process. I want this, I want that, but I don't have a seat at the table. Yeah. Um, I'm not listened to enough. I don't have enough cred with product management. I don't, you know, it's like the series of reasons why that's not possible. And the thing that I found is that all of those things are true. It's not like any of those things are untrue. Uh, there is, yeah, sure. Like there's a lot of forces working against you. If you are a designer within an organization that's doing some weird unethical stuff, like against being able to stop them. But that when you look at it from that perspective, when you look at it from that sort of binary perspective of like, am I powerful or powerless? 
you're almost always going to end up on the side of powerlessness, right? Because you're not, obviously you're not fully powerful. You can't make every decision. And so we default to the place that is easier. We default to the place that allows us to sort of stay where we are. So we default to saying like, well, I can't do anything then. And what often happens in that place is that we end up feeling more and more frustrated or burned out, but we don't really have a lot of creativity around what to do about that. It's hard to come up with ideas for ways to move forward or even to kind of reassess like, okay, maybe you work at an organization where making big change isn't going to happen. And you actually are really uncomfortable with the idea of continuing to work in that organization. Like I think about some of the people I know who work at Facebook and who have deep, deep, deep moral ethical concerns about the work they do at Facebook. And they still struggle to imagine other types of possibilities. And that's, that's really hard to do when you get into that place of that binary thinking and that powerlessness, right? Because like it does, it creates this fear of making like, cause you feel like, like I, I can't get to the other side um, or all options seem bad. So I'll just not make any decisions. And I think that that's one of the big things that I try to help people work through is yeah, okay, there's a lot of power you don't have, but let's look, where are you powerful? And what does that look like? And what is going to let you sleep at night? And what's going to make you feel more satisfied with the work that you do? And what are you going to feel good about next year and five years from now and 10 years from now? And also, what are you willing to risk for that? Yeah, and I I, I want to dig deep on that notion of binary. You gave this amazing mm-hmm. talk at uh, Designing Content Conference this year, which I need you to tell me, is it always like that? Because so Designing Content Conference <laughs> is this amazing conference. Sarah's been trying to get me to go for years. I finally went this year. It was virtual, but, you know, um, I still went. And, like, I got to tell you all, like every other talk, like without any couching of it, like the terms white supremacy were, like, thrown about, right? Like without any, like, you know, uh, uh, unabashedness. Um, like it was a very upfront, this is the real, real stuff we need to talk about talk after talk after talk. So A, has it always been like that? Because that that was the first time I've seen that. So, I mean, normally it's in Vancouver, British Columbia. So there's like better sushi and Mountain Dew <laughs> um, than there is in my home in South Philly. Also, I would say, I mean, I would say the answer of course is like yes and no. And that that event has always had a strong component of sort of like healthy and humane conversations and conversations that really question the work that we're putting out into the world. And that event was held in the summer of 2020 and we have some shit to deal with. (laughs) And so I think that those things combined into it being a space where people really wanted to kind of push on the topics that they were bringing up. And so it's like, yeah, we're going to talk about the taxonomy of, you know, like, is it a salad? And we're going to talk about how taxonomy is used in white supremacy. Yeah. Great. And, it was a great and, talk, Lisa Maria Martin. I recommend oh, that yeah. one too. <laughs> yeah, and 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 Lisa Maria uh, is my my editor. Full disclosure on that book was amazing to work with. But and part of the inspiration for me trying to get my head around okay, we need to talk about design and we need to talk about white supremacy. Like, and these two, it isn't just how do I make these two fit together. It's like no, how are these t- two things inextricably linked? Right, and they um, are inextricably linked. And I think that that's one of the things that's really challenging is when people want to keep them separated, then it's very easy to default back to like, well, no, I'm just doing the work. I'm not here to talk about the politics. And I'm like, oh, the work is the, all of it is the politics all of the time. And like, there's no actual escaping that. You can pretend it's otherwise, you can avoid talking about it, 
But that is simply true whether you want to face it or not. And once we face it, well, then we can have some interesting conversations. Well, you're, you're digging into something that I think has been true for a long time, but we've had trouble articulating. I still remember after you were technically wrong, you were giving a talk that was really saying, hey, we've been pretending like this work we do is technical work, that it is about understanding design concepts or understanding code or understanding technical things, when really, because of the things we're building, like Facebook, um, it's actually about understanding people, and we are woefully underqualified, <laughs> right? Yeah, and understanding culture and understanding mm -hmm. history. I mean, when you look at the things that tech has gotten its fingers into, it's basically everything, right? I mean, you look at surveillance tech as a huge category, and lots of people work on surveillance tech without necessarily even considering it surveillance tech. Um, and if you're, you know, if you're working on technology that's like predictive policing software, or if you're working on technology, even like, let's say... Um, ring cameras that are used at, for home security and the technology that is like the community that connects ring users to one another is also collecting data about where incidents, and I'm using some finger quotes there, incidents are happening in communities that is being shared with police. It's like, okay, well now you are complicit in designing something that is being used by police to target communities and those communities are almost always non-white. Have you thought about the implications of that? And have you thought about the historical implications of that? So once you start talking about who is policed and where they're policed and what is happening in this part of a city versus that part of the city, then you have to reckon with, well, what is the history of policing in my, in my city? And you just reckon with what is the history of redlining in my city? But the problem comes with like when we're not reckoning with any of that. And I think that that's what we see over and over again. And it's, it's, it's really hard because once you start paying attention to this, you see it everywhere and you see that it is continuing to happen, right? That it is, it is like, yeah, we're talking about it now, but the products are just proliferating. They're not stopping. Yeah. I mean, that was actually why I saw, like I was as, um, in the wake of, of George Floyd, I was sort of looking at different reactions yeah. and sort of on a spectrum of like meaningful to surface and one of the things that was a little more on the meaningful and interesting side to me was IBM saying, oh, yeah, we're just not going to do uh, facial recognition anymore, right? Like, that was interesting to me because that, 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 at least theoretically, had money. <laughs> like, that, that, yeah. was, that was, that was going to hurt. In fact, that was one of the things you talk about in your talk is this notion of, like, when you're making these Black Lives Matter statements, there's, there's statements that don't cost you anything. But what then is it costing you? Yeah. Exactly. And, like, are you doing something where it's like, no, that's, that's going to hurt, like that's going mean, to piss off your shareholders. <laughs> and let's not, you know, like I, I would like to give IBM some credit and also not all of the credit in sure. the sense that that was a line of business that was not a substantial amount of profit. And it was something that they, they hadn't quite dialed that as a product, but at the same time, I mean, they scrapped a lot of R and D. They scrapped a lot of work that had gone into running facial recognition when they, when they were like, the risks are just too high for this yeah. product. And I think, I think that is courageous in that we are so accustomed to like doubling down on bad decisions and to actually say, you know what, this isn't working. We're pulling out of this. We don't feel good about this. We've learned something. And that's what I want people to be able to do is to be able to say, I've learned something and I've realized something. And I mean, that's one of the things I think is actually a mark of somebody I want to follow. Like somebody who's a great leader is somebody who can say, I've learned something. That's why every time there's some sort of thing that's like, oh, this politician 25 years ago believed X and now they believe Y. I'm like, yeah, that's, 
growth. I mean, unless like 25 years ago, they were okay. And now they're white supremacists, in which case that's not growth. But I do think that, that oftentimes we'll kind of like, be like, oh, gotcha. You've changed your mind. Like, yeah, that's, no, that's good. We need to be able to take in new information and then make better decisions. Like that's not a problem. Well, I think you're also pointing at certain um, spectrums of leadership, right? And, and, and positions of leadership where we have in our mind one narrative of leadership that is all about being stalwart, right? And simplistic and pure, right? Um, and that I'm following you because you're projecting all this confidence and confidence never learns. Confidence never like wavers. And that stereotype, I think, like conflicts with a more, I think, helpful version of leadership, which is, oh, we just found out this is killing people. Let's stop doing it. <laughs> and I think what I would even say is that we're talking about two different types of confidence. Mm. There is the confidence that's sort of like, I, that has to be upheld by external validation all the time, mm. right? Which is like, don't question me. And I can retain my confidence and my sense of power because you're not questioning me because you are perceiving of me as being powerful decider here. And that kind of confidence is actually very fragile, which is why it has to be reinforced all the time. Um, and instead, I think what we're talking about is the confidence that comes from that, and this is like slightly woo, right? But like it comes from that place, it's a little deeper. It comes from within. And it says like, I know that what I'm doing is right because it, is, it aligns with my values. It's something that says, I've actually thought about what I care about. I've thought about what I'll say no to. And I am confident enough to stand up and say, I'm wrong and know that that's going to be okay, that that's going to lead me to where I need to be. And I think it is a kind of confidence. It's just a much deeper sort of confidence and it's a much less ego-driven sort of confidence. And I think that that's what we need to foster more of in people. Yeah. And you're, you're hitting on something and it will, we'll, we'll go pretty deep here if you don't mind. But <laughs> so I, I, you know, I've been going through therapy for the past year and change. And <laughs> first off, Thank God I was, I was diagnosed with um, uh, clinical depression last year. And thank God that was sorted and identified and help was sought before 2020. Because <laughs> yeah. try, to, try to picture a guy like me going through 2020 without antidepressants and without therapy. <laughs> right? <laughs> so like 2019, like all of that was sort of like uh, basic training for 2020. Yeah. But, um, but as part of that, one of the things you learn in sort of cognitive behavioral therapy is this idea of trying to align with values as opposed to some external idea of what is mm -hmm. a good or a bad person or what is good or bad leadership, right? Constantly trying to get validated from the outside. Yeah. And one of the things I know I struggled with in terms of even learning to try to love myself was this fear that, oh, if I become one of those guys who loves himself, uh, I'll be just like Trump. I'll be a narcissist. Right. And trying <laughs> oh, to, there's right? a few, there's a few steps in between. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and so, and, and so I think like what you're describing with the leadership is like trying to understand that difference between a narcissist who really isn't coming at that confidence from a place of true self-love versus someone who loves themselves, but in a way that isn't like at the cost of others. <laughs> I mean, and in fact, if you, you know, you worry that, that, that the opposite of sort of like clinical depression is narcissism, but in fact, like people who are actually narcissistic, are in a lot of ways, like they're the most needing of external validation, um, right? Because they can't, they can't live without constantly having to put themselves into the center of attention, right? They don't have any confidence in themselves that just exists. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think a lot about is the way in which that kind of self-knowledge and the way in which sort of like 
coming to terms with yourself and finding some compassion for yourself actually really unlocks the ability to have a lot of compassion for other people too, um, which is obviously a problem with people who are narcissistic, like true narcissists, which are rare. Right. Um, but that's one of the problems is that it's, it's very hard to, it's very hard to actually connect with other people to, uh, understand where they're coming from and to really care about them when you're constantly putting up a shield and when you're constantly like constant defenses, right. Constant armor. And there's nobody who's sort of more armored than, than the narcissist. And so I think, you know, letting down some of that armor and saying like, I was in a bad place and I needed some help, like what that does for you is huge and what that opens you up to and who that opens you up to. Yeah. And there's, there's, there's a vulnerability there that again, like, I feel like there's common perceptions about what traditional, I'll even go so far as to say hyper-masculine visions of leadership, um, especially yeah. in tech, you know, uh, eschews vulnerability in a lot of ways. Um, and we're definitely seeing like a delineation between you know, two visions of what leadership is in this sort of very broy kind of Silicon Valley, like traditional masculine leadership versus, I don't even want to call it feminine leadership, just different leadership <laughs> that is coming from a place of, of more, more from, of, like we said, vulnerability, ability to learn actual self-love. And I, I don't know that, that, that dichotomy is becoming even more and more stark for me, like in the past few years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it is, it is often a kind of leadership that I think historically has been miscategorized as something else, miscategorized mm. as soft skills. And um, instead of, and like when we say soft skills, we often mean like skills I don't care about that much. And, <laughs> or that you don't want to pay as much for. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. And, and actually they're really hard. They're difficult skills. And not only are they difficult skills, but I think they are fundamentally leadership skills. Mm. And right, like, having a difficult conversation and having it directly without, you know, shaming people without getting defensive. Like that is actually hard to do. And one of the things that I've found with people is that as they've moved up into more leadership roles, what they found is that those skills were the biggest thing that were keeping them from feeling successful in the role. It wasn't about, you know, whether they felt like they had enough knowledge to lead the team. It wasn't about their sort of decision-making in an expertise level, decision-making around projects or products. It's around how do I actually talk to my team about this thing that's really hard? Or it's around, you know, like we're not on the same page about performance for this person on my team. And I don't, I don't know how to bring it up again, because I keep bringing it up. And it's like, okay, so we're going to have to deal with some uncomfortable things here and not avoid them. And yeah. I mean, and there's a huge amount of, of depth and of, of work that can go into that. But I think the first thing is that so much of what we perceive of as being like sort of like stereotypical leadership culture is very avoidant. It's very mm. like, we do it this way and top down. And I think that what we're talking about is, is meaning, and we can see all around us the failures of that. And what we're talking about is like, what is something that is fundamentally a lot more interconnected, fundamentally a lot more interdependent, you know? And that's yeah. obviously what we need in this moment. If you look around, like we're going through a pandemic, we have this massive reckoning on racial justice. We have tremendous amount of insecurity economically. We've got people who have like a toddler who is like pulling on their leg literally right now while they're trying to listen in on this. And you know, we need interdependence. And I think like a top-down approach to any of this is not particularly functional. And yet we, 
we tend to be really bad at it because we haven't said this matters. We haven't said we want to be good at this as a team, as an organization, or as a culture. Yeah. And I, I don't think we have a lot of good models for it. I mean, I talk, I talk a lot in the book about how patterns help us interpret the world and, res- and result in, for better or worse, the different biases that we have. Yeah. And those patterns come from somewhere. And I think we have a lot of patterns for that very typical top-down leadership approach. And I, and I think that's bolstered by like the self-made man myth and the tech guru mm-hmm. myth right? Or the, or the rock star ninja myth, (laughs) you know, which makes it even harder than like, actually one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like the notion of imposter syndrome. We're talking about it a lot more. And I wonder how much of imposter syndrome is feeling like you're an imposter, not because you don't meet some actual functional ideal, but because you don't meet some fictionalized ideal, right? (laughs) You know, so I was just writing about this because I'm doing this, um, I'm doing this like little six week leadership program that I'm starting to launch and I was putting together materials for it. And this is something that comes up explicitly because it comes up in like almost every conversation I have um, with people who don't present as straight white cis men. And which it means like most of the people I work with. And and I think it's really that imposter syndrome is real, but when we say imposter syndrome, what that often feels like is sort of like a, a diagnosis of something wrong with you. Mm. And what I, right. So it's like, I mean, like you have a syndrome and it gets perceived as sort of being like, oh, it's just some brain quirk you have. It's just some like thing you made up in your head. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, this is a reasonable reaction to a world that has told you a bunch of bullshit for a long time. You didn't just make this up. This is a message that you received. Like if you received message messages over and over again, that you, know, you were the only one who looked like you in the room. If you receive messages over and over again, that you kind of don't really belong there. You probably just got to be where you are because of some kind of special treatment. If you got messages that you need to be the representative for your gender, the representative for your race. If you got messages that you need to be twice as good to get half as much. If you got messages that uh, actually people from your gender aren't that good at technology. If you got messages that whatever you wore when you gave the presentation was the wrong thing. However you looked, it was definitely too frumpy or it was too sexy. You weren't feminine enough. You were too feminine. Like if you get that much stuff being shoved at you all of the time for years and years and years like yeah like your brain's trying to make sense of it and one of the ways it makes sense of it is to internalize it and that is just what happens that's not that's not your failing that is the result of a bunch of cultural influences and sometimes it's a defense mechanism right like to exist in a hostile universe you figure out how to not make too many waves the problem comes in when people realize they are miserable and they're burnt out and they've been spinning around trying to do everything that everybody else has ever wanted. And then they hit the wall, whether that's like professionally or just emotionally, they hit the wall and they're like, well, now what? And then it's like, okay, well, yeah, you have learned a bunch of skills that got you, that got you through the world up until now. And now it's time to learn some different things and unlearn some things to be able to get out of that. And so it is unfair that you have to do all of this work because culture vomited a bunch of crap at you for years. But also this is all, this is all we can do, right? It's like, okay, how do we want to deal with that? And what do we want to do with that? 
Yeah, and I and I I like what you said about syndrome because I think of the the scientific or more scientific name for for that, which is Dunning Kruger effect, and I like that name better because of the word effect, right? It implies that there's a cause, <laughs> right? It's not something that you're. It's something right. something inherently is broken inside of you, and oh, if we could just fix that, it's like no, this has happened because of something else, <laughs> right? Mm. And well, I think you know, yeah. Yeah, but the first imposter syndrome was actually first called imposter phenomenon. Mm. It was studied by researchers in the seventies, and what they were finding it was um, was women researchers in the seventies who were finding that it was cropping up amongst um, their fellow women in like graduate programs, and and I believe they came up with it as sort of like a relative to Dunning Kruger Kruger effect. And Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know when phenomenon changed to syndrome. And I think phenomenon is also a little bit problematic in that it like, that almost implies that like, there's no, like, there's no reason it's like, you didn't make it. I didn't make it. It's just there. And I'm like, okay, well that's, it's like, no, I think effect is actually a better word, right? It's like, this is the impact of a system. And it's in fact, the designed impact of that system. Yeah. Well, that's another thing I want to talk about is this idea that, I don't even want to say idea, fact, that, <laughs> that racism is designed, mm, that bigotry, yes. that, that chauvinism, misogyny is designed. And you should talk a little more about that because I don't know that everyone, I think when people steep in it for a little, they start to get it, but it's like, it feels like a relatively new concept, even though it's been going on for a while. I mean, it's right. I mean, the answer is that it's not that we had race and then we created racism, it's that we wanted racism, so we created race. Like, that's how it happened. Yeah. And so when you think of it that way, then of course it's designed, right? Like, that is designed because it's beneficial to some groups to hold power over other groups. It's beneficial to some groups to be able to exploit other groups. And then we created racial categories to justify that. And I think... All of that is sometimes hard for people to grasp. I actually had a long conversation with my brother the other day who like is, you know, he's trying to like work on his stuff. And we had this long conversation about whiteness and white supremacy. And it was sort of like, he's like, he's a professor. It's like, was my, you know, is my midterms white supremacist now? And I was like, yes, it is. But maybe not in the way that you're thinking. Let's talk about that. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, as we started sort of talking about it, I, I realized that one of the things that I think is often missing is sort of like, that fundamental education and whiteness amongst white people. People of color know about white people because like you have to deal with us your whole life. We're, we're, familiar, <laughs> we're familiar with your work. <laughs> yeah. So, but white people have mostly been able to go their whole lives without having to fundamentally question what whiteness is and how it works and what role they play in it and the ways in which they're white. Because it's, as you know, all right, this is, I'm not gonna teach you anything here. Let's treat it as default and normalize and neutralized. And I think, until you can see that and you can see your own race, which is again, racialized groups don't have that problem. Like we have made you see your race constantly forever. So that is like, that is just a fact that you've already dealt with. But until we can see that, until we can sort of like allow ourselves to see our whiteness, I think it's really difficult to then look at the way that race is designed. Um, Because it's almost like, you have actions without actors, right? Like who is the people that is doing the designing? And like, so that is something you have to reckon with. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's interesting too, because like I, I always try to think about 
the the position, the best position from which to examine your own whiteness. And my perspective on that is the examine from which I examine my own maleness, right? So I'm a black man, but I am a man. And so there's all this stuff I get for free, right? Or I, I get it much lower cost than if I were a woman. There's, even as a black man, there is a uh, cost for services, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm already making one third more, right? <laughs> uh, just because I was born with no particular talent except to not be female. Um, and so trying to come at that from a place of, okay, this is a thing. How can I make the world better? What do I, what do I learn? How do I, how do I exist? How do I live my values in that space versus feeling ashamed all the time <laughs> or not even ashamed, defensive all the time. Right. Like well, those are two sides of the same coin. Yeah, exactly. And trying to sort of like, it's the difference between trying to score points and trying to help. You know what I mean? It's like, and I've seen this in conversations I've had with folks around, you know, white fragility, where it's like, it's clear to me that what they're asking me for is to give them some kind of pass or some kind of like card to play or some kind of like phrase, some magic phrase to use if they're yeah, ever like, in an uncomfortable situation. Yeah, like, can you let me know situation. that I'm one of the good ones? Exactly. Yeah. Versus trying to say, you know, let's work the problem okay, your ancestors did some shit. My ancestors did, got, got you know, hit with some shit. Uh, my maleness is giving me some advantages here that you don't have. Your whiteness is giving me some advantages that I don't have. Let's work the problem, which is a completely different, and it's a more curious place to come from, I think, than that Absolutely. defensive place. But it's a really hard shift, well, I, I think, think, to make. Yeah, I think that that goes right back to the binary thinking, though, right? Yes. Because yeah. what have white people been taught? It's like, we've been taught that being racist is bad. So what, are, what do we want to be? Not racist, right? And so that's the binary that we've mostly been taught. And I think about this a lot, like how many times have I either verbally or mentally wanted to categorize myself as not racist? And, and I think that was something that I probably, like, I probably started reckoning with several years after some of the other reckoning I was trying to do around race and realizing that that was not a useful way of looking at it, right? And you can see it all the time. Like you see when people want to be able to um, justify or like, yeah, justify that they belong in the not racist grouping by telling you about like the number of black people that they're friends with or like that they went to a Black Lives Matter protest or who they voted for, right? Like I would have voted for Obama three times. Okay, that's like, <laughs> thanks for your evidence, but we're still stuck in a binary. And when yeah. you're stuck in a binary of racist versus non-racist, there's no room for growth, right? Because putting yourself, unless you are an actual right, white supremacist who's like, I'm in the racist category, probably you're not listening to this podcast. But at that point, like everybody else wants to be, if you, those are the two categories presented to you, you want to be in the not racist category. And it shuts down any grappling with what are the ways in which I'm still enacting racism? What are the things that I'm doing? What are the things that I have done? What's the stuff that I have screwed up? What are the ways that I make amends for that? And being able to look at that in a way that isn't defensive, right? Because if there's only two categories, racist and not racist, and somebody threatens whether you belong in the not racist category, you're going to feel defensive about that. And you're going to be like, no, 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 no. And you're going to have to defend that you belong in the not racist grouping because the other option is awful. But if you can believe that there is not two categories, that it is more like a whole spectrum of beliefs and behaviors, habits, biases, some of which you've worked through, some of which you haven't, some of which you will spend your whole life unlearning. 
if you can do that, then if somebody tells you that you screwed up, you can go, ah, that's information I need to listen to. And how do I make sense of that? And how do I square that with how I see myself? But you don't do any of that if what you need to do is protect that you belong in the good category and the bad category. Yeah, and I, I feel like, I mean, that, that was one of the things that really stood out to me about your, your talk was that it was going one level deeper than just talking about white supremacy. It was basically going to this level of the binary thinking itself is perpetuating white supremacy and many other injustices. And can you talk a bit about that laddering going from like how the binary thinking itself is empowering white supremacy? Oof, I can try. That's, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's deep. It's, this is one of these things that I think takes a while to, to sink in. Mm-hmm. But one of the things about binary thinking, because we've talked about it, right? Like even like the racist versus not racist categories, which I feel like that makes it kind of clear um, what, what, why that's problematic, um, is that when you go with an either or, you're, you're thrusting everybody into like us versus them, this or that, pick one. And what that does is that tends to, to bias us toward the status quo because it's usually the easiest, right? The easiest yeah. thing to do is to reject new information. It's like when you ask a yes or no question, like you ask a permission, permission-based question, the easiest answer that for somebody to give you is no, because if they say no, then they don't have to think about anything changing, right? Yeah. Um, and so when you want to shut down a conversation, you go to yes, no. When you want to shut down growth, you go to binary thinking. And, and so the reason that it supports white supremacy is that it is fundamentally about locking people into their place, right? Mm. Locking them into these strict categories and then from there preventing them from saying, okay, like, how do I deal with the messy parts? What do I do with the information that doesn't fit neatly? Like none of those questions come up. If you keep people focused on maintaining membership in one of two categories, right? Like if, you, if you're like, okay, it's good or bad and you need to focus on maintaining membership in the good category, then that's where you're going to spend all of your energy and you're not going to spend your time reckoning with anything outside of that. Yeah, and I, and I it, it does seem to come back to that fixed mindset versus growth mindset, right? Um, I think, and it, it's interesting because what you're what you're talking about reminds me of some conversations I've had lately about dominance narratives versus sort of the opposite that doesn't really have a good name right now. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah. this notion, and, and I'm I'm coming, you know, I'm a I'm a filmmaker. I love movies, and most of the movies I love, frankly, are action movies that follow a pretty standard, you know, uh, usually male oriented, but very mm-hmm. sort of there is a bad guy and there is a good guy to go back to the binary, and the movie is over when the good guy triumphs over the bad guy. Right, and it's very, you yep. know, and it's very hard to think of narratives um, that don't adhere in one way or another to that. Although one that comes to mind, and I apologize if this is gonna be a bit spoilery, but um, I'm gonna bring it up just because it's worth engaging with, is The Babadook, which is this horror film that many take as a, you know, a metaphor for mental illness. Um, and without getting too specific, the goal isn't necessarily to win. (laughs) The goal is to find a way to live with. And that is a very different horror narrative or or just movie narrative period than we're used to seeing. And I feel like that gives us an alternative to binary thing that gives us an alternative to winning racism. (laughs) Right. Right. Cause, cause I've been trying to get my head around what does it look like for America to actually reckon with the sins of the past? Right. 
Um, Because not doing that, and in fact, often doubling down on them instead, (laughs) has just simply pushed it down further. And like Mm -hmm. any individual who represses stuff, it acts out and it comes out in other ways that are usually destructive. So what does that look like? And I'm realizing it's not about this one generation, this one magical generation that finally says, okay, we're going to sit down and have an intervention. Right. Let's <laughs> write like, out the plan and then, yeah, we'll, then we'll have it covered. Yeah. And purge it. And then all future generations will be free of it. No, it feel, I, I'm sensing it's more like an alcoholic who says, mm-hmm. I am an alcoholic <laughs> and yeah. I have to behave in certain ways now to honor that. <laughs> right. And that means that this is how I'm going to engage with that. And I am going to be engaging with with that in different ways as I mature, like I'm going to grow, but at no point do I get to like, there's no coin I get that says you are no longer an alcoholic. Right. right? And I wonder if that's more what it looks like to reckon with a history of racism or for men to reckon with the history of sexism to say like, I am a sexist (laughs) and here is the history I'm reckoning with. And this is how I'm engaging with that. And it's not a fixed lane so much as it is just this thing that exists that we're trying to bring embody with, with with our with our values. And I think part of it is to recognize that, I mean for me at least, has been to recognize that there is no not only is there no there's no winning and there's no done, there's no amount of depth that I can get to an understanding that is going to be like the final depth. There is always somewhere deeper to go. Yeah. That I won't and I won't be able to see where that is until I get to the step before and, and that that's okay. Like that, that's fine. And that is hard. It's like, you're looking at a big thing. And I, that, I mean, this is one of the reasons people turn away from stuff is that it's too big and complicated and you try to look at the whole thing at once and you're like, well, how would you solve it then? And that becomes a defense mechanism. Like as if, as if racism isn't real because we, can't just like write a little plan that gets us out of it right like um and so that's why i think you know we need to be talking i would take seriously every idea like i want to take very seriously calls for reparations and actually think about like what would reparations look like or what are the many ways reparations could look and i think we need to be thinking about the possibility of so many different types of interventions and so many different types of changes and to accept that it's not one versus the other or that there's going to be a singular right way, but rather to accept that the work is collectively agreeing Mm. that we care about this enough to wade into it and sit in it. And with the knowledge that it will continue to be hard. No. Um, I'm going to remind folks, if you want to throw questions into the chat, uh, just give me an all caps text or video if you want me to read it or if you want to go on camera with it. Um, But one of the things that I've seen, I think is a really interesting and unexpected discussion lately is, uh, I think there was literally a talk with this title, like, what are the ways in which design thinking perpetuates white supremacy or perpetuates systems of oppression? I want to go to one of those sessions and I have not made it to one yet. Me, me neither. Like, do you, okay. So let me ask you this. How do you think it's doing it? Cause I haven't been yet either, but I have my suspicions, but like, what are, what are, what are ways or what are ways you've seen or suspect that it is? Yeah. Doing I mean, I, yeah, I'll speak, I'll speak for myself here. Um, and I wish I remembered the organization that has been putting these on, but it, they look like amazing workshops on white supremacy and design thinking. And, you know, like IDEO has been called out a bit on this. So the thing about design thinking is that I, 
design thinking is not inherently anything, right? Like it's a technique, but the adoption of design thinking as like the technique that all of the businesses and all of the executives need to do is somehow like a magic bullet for them to get to some magical better place or is, is I think where the problem lies. So the selling of design thinking as a solution and this perpetuation of this idea that a bunch of senior executives, we can guess what that room looks like, mm-hmm. is going to be able to come together and design think their way through other people's lives who aren't them, right? Like we don't need to actually design with other people. We don't need to actually diversify who's in the room. If we just do a good enough job with our design thinking, then we can get empathy into our product or whatever, right? And I feel like it's a very reductionist way of looking. And I'm not, I mean, I don't think it's a bad idea to uh, to engage stakeholders in sort of imagining things through other people's perspectives. I think it's a great idea. I just think it's like not enough of an idea by itself. And the reliance on it is sort of like the design process and the way that innovation happens, I think has been where it's really problematic. And, you know, one of the things that... One of the things that I would hope is that there's a lot more conversations about what does it look like to truly design with? Like, what is real co-creation? What does it look like to shift who is within our organizations and also who it is that we perceive as, as being valuable to do research with? And then also what that research looks like, right? Because it's all, it's like, it's happening at every level. It's who is actually in the design team, who is the, yeah. who is the leadership of the organization, and who do we do research with? And is that research actually um, taking into account their full humanity and engaging with them at a deeper level? Or is it ultimately like super paternalistic research where we still end up kind of telling people what they need? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the pieces you're pointing to look like what participatory and co-creative design are trying to solve for, because yeah. a lot of what I've seen from participatory design is this attempt to honor the research subjects, right? And to um, think about not just who is the user, but who is this technology impacting? And especially who is this technology impacting who does not have power? And how do we give them power? Which is a much more interesting question than how do I make the CEO happy? And the problem is, of course, that the incentives typically aren't there. And that's yeah. when people, but that's when people often shut down. It's like, well, the incentives aren't there because capitalism and like, well, I can't fight capitalism in my role as a designer. So anyway, back to my personas. And I think that that's like, that's where the shutdown tends to happen. And I want to be able to say like, yeah, that's a real problem. And that may not be a problem that you can personally fix in the context of this particular like onboarding flow you're working on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also let's grapple with that a little bit and let's think about how, you know, how do we feel about that? What are we going to do with that? What are the things that are possible from here and what kinds of ripple effects does that make? And I want to make sure that we're still having that kind of complicating conversation, Mm -hmm. even when we still are trying to make the CEO happy or fundamentally that is what like the organization is primed to do. Yeah. And um, Luke, if you don't mind, I'm going to, I'm going to call you out again because I like this comment you have about uh, how much of, and I'm assuming of when you say that is the design thinking perpetuating systems of oppression, uh, people using design frameworks being used by those with hierarchical or binary schema. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah. Um, for me, just the thought of like, you guys were having the whole conversation of you have like so much of the system is set up by those who have binary thinking 
and especially those who are also in like spaces where design thinking became a flashy new thing and somebody heard of it and was like, we should do that. But their schema or mental models are firmly rooted in hierarchical power structures on which they are the top. And so now it's like, right, rather than like a true participatory design process and like having done some work like at the Village of Arts and Humanities and like doing co-creating with young black high school, Philadelphia, high school age Philadelphians. And I think that that's like an extensive place to explore like what co-creation and participatory design look like. Mm. But with what I was referencing in that comment, I think people who are in that C-suite, like, oh, we should do a design sprint. Um, right. The, the output is always going to be precipitated to like, we should do a design sprint subtext. I still want to hear what I want to hear. And my mind is already made up about this. Um, and then yeah. we've come back around to the problem with leadership where it's like, and that is a model of leadership that is failing us, right? Because that's not a model of leadership that's interested in taking in new information. That is a model of leadership that is fundamentally driven by ego. And we all have ego. We all have ego at some level. I am certainly not immune to that. Um, just like we all want some level of external validation. I'm also not immune to that. But that the, when those are the dominant ways in which we perceive a value and those are the dominant ways in which we go around the world, like that is... What you create is is a system where you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice that you brought those those little people in, <laughs> right? But ultimately, they're not that important. And I mean, that was one of the things that I I found was difficult working with organizations was where the the interest in change sort of stopped at a very surface level, right? Like, oh, look, we did a little mentorship thing and brought in these other people from these underrepresented groups who wouldn't have the opportunity. Let's all clap. Yeah, the, I wonder how much of this is also baked into how we sell design and how we've been selling design thinking. Because I, I think we have generally been selling it in a way to appeal to that CEO who's like, ooh, that's the hot new shiny thing. I want the hot new shiny thing rather than like I'm even trying to come up with the right language for it, but like selling it, even, even those words, it makes me think, okay, we need to make this look attractive, right? And what's attractive, what's shiny about giving, your, giving, the power, giving power to people who are impacted by that, by that thing you're, ma you're making? <laughs> well, particularly like you talked about, if these are people who are impacted, but they don't have that much power and they're not necessarily yeah. users, it's like, so we're going to bring in the opinions of people who aren't even buying our stuff, mm -hmm. which that's a, that's a tough conversation to have. And I think that in a lot of organizations, we're really far from having that conversation because again, the organization is not set up in such a way to make that possible. And we can point to a lot of, of reasons for that, right? Like we can point to the like growth at any cost mentality in Silicon Valley. We can point to the way that, um, like shareholder driven companies like have uh, just absolute like the expectations of um, publicly traded companies and sort of shareholder value increases that have happened over the past 30 years. And like you can point to that stuff. But I think what we have to be able to say is if you're, you know, if you're not that person who is a, an executive at a company, um, if you are a person who's just trying to like live your life and do a good job and, and like find some, professional success where you can 
to still be able to look at that system and say, okay, I'm complicit in this system. I can't necessarily get out of the system entirely, but I do need to look at the ways in which I'm complicit and decide which are the ones, which are ones I can live with and which ones I can't and where I'm going to push back and what's going to be valuable. And I think that that's, you know, for some people it's like, I'm going to leave this field and I'm going to do something that I feel better about. And for some people, it's like, I'm going to try to shift things where I can. And, you know, and for some people, it's like, I'm going to put my headphones back on and go back to moving little buttons around on a UI. Um, and I would encourage more people to get out of that space and to, to get to a space that is a little riskier and a little bit more painful. And it's ultimately, I think, a much richer place to live. One of the things I really liked... And I feel bad referencing the talk because it's not really available, but I'm, I'm assuming at some point you'll be able to give it again. <laughs> but, but one of the other things that really stood out about your talk was it ended on, I think, a very hopeful note in that it, it refused to diminish the impact of even small actions, which I think is an extremely mm -hmm. important thing to do. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, of like being faced with this big megalith, you know, megalith of stuff. Yeah. How do we, how do we focus on... How do we draw power from and honor the even the small things that we can do to make it better? Yeah, so um, I I love this quote that I won't try to do word for word from Adrienne Marie Brown, who wrote a book called Emergent Strategy, um, which is basically like how do we build strategies that are instead of hierarchical um, that are more emergent that can kind of come out of spaces and. I would recommend that book, and I would also say if you re if you are expecting that book to be like a typical strategy book, prepare yourself. It's much more like almost stream of consciousness, almost like poetic at times. Um, there are so many little bits in there that stuck to me and that I continue to think about. And one of the things she talks about is that essentially there, there isn't any scale, but the, the small scale, like we are in technology obsessed with scale, but that change always happens at the smallest scale because we cannot actually figure out what is going to work at a larger scale until we can figure out how to live that solution in the small ways. And so discounting small things leads us to nothing. We have to be able to look at this, take the small actions and say, what can this add up to? What can this grow into? How can this ripple outward from here? And to accept that that is not just all we can do, but it's actually the only way that change happens. Mm. It, it reminds me of a, there's, there's going to be like um, an attribution, like a formal attribution that's going to be like someone on Tumblr, but <laughs> someone on Tumblr <laughs> posted this really cool thing that was like, okay, you know how in time travel movies, there's always this thing where if you go back in time, there's always somebody who's like, okay, don't like even step on a butterfly. Like any little thing you do could have this huge effect on the future. So like, be really super careful. Like that's a trope in time travel movies. And yet when we live our daily lives, we don't act as if any little thing we do could have a huge impact on the future. Right. So it's like, if it's true, then it's true now. Uh, so I really, I really like that angle on believing in the impact of small choices. And I guess I'd look around the world and I think like, literally what else are you going to do like what else are you going to do right now i mean besides just completely fall apart in a heap of despair which i feel you i have i've bought more doritos during the last six months than at any other time in my life but i also think that there's a there's you know there's a point to um there's a point where you really have to be able to say well i'm still here and i'm still in it and so 
what do I what do I do with that? What am I choosing in that? And I think going back to your conversation about, you know, going to therapy and doing some cognitive behavioral therapy, a lot of that is about building new habits in small ways, right? A lot of that is about, you know, taking a habit for how you look at things and then being able to say, ah, that habit isn't serving me. How am I going to shift it? What's a small thinking pattern that needs to change, right? Like that is all about small change. And as I'm sure, you know, because you wanted to talk about it in this conversation, like, the impact of that can be really massive. Yeah, it's, it's the funny way you put that. It's sort of like Marie condoing your subconscious. It's like, this habit does not bring me joy. <laughs> I will discard it. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We're, we're just about out of time. I want to um, real quick let folks know the next one of these is going to be on Monday with, um, oh, let me get the link, with Margot Stern uh, from Facebook, who has some very interesting things to talk to us about. I mean, going back to that whole thing of Ooh, dealing with the organization, yeah. right? I um, love Margot. Hold yeah, she's time. amazing. She's amazing. Uh, and she's going to be talking to us about um, some of the struggles of trying to slow users down and trying to find metrics that actually make sense. So I feel like we're going to have some resonant themes there. So the link to sign up for that is in the uh, chat. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for, for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Awesome to do. Everybody go buy Dave's book. It's really great for thinking about all this stuff. I'm going to sell it for you because I know it's rough out there. You launch a new book. You want people to like get hyped about it. Please get hyped for Dave's book because it's like actually great. Thank you so much. And there are many books you can get by Sarah, but uh, Technically Wrong <laughs> is the most recent. So definitely, I think they pair nicely. Um, uh, thank you all for coming uh, for the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas, and we will see you all next time.